the habit loop how habits work in the fall of 1993 a man who would append much of what we know about habits walked into a laboratory in san diego for a scheduled appointment he was elderly a shade over 6 feet tall and neatly dressed in a blue button down shirt his thick white hair would have inspired envy at any 50th high school reunion arthritis caused him to limp slightly as he paced the laboratory's hallways and he held his wife's hand walking slowly as if unsure about what each new step would bring about a year earlier Eugene Polly or EP as he would come to be known in medical literature had been at home in Playa del Rey preparing for dinner when his wife mentioned that their son Michael was coming over Who's Michael Eugene asked Your child said his wife Beverly You know the one we raised Eugene looked at her blankly Who is that he asked the next day eugene started vomiting and writhing with stomach cramps within 24 hours his dehydration was so pronounced that a panicked beverly took him to the emergency room his temperature started rising hitting 105 degrees as he sweated a yellow halo of perspiration onto the hospital sheets he became delirious then violent yelling and pushing when nurses tried to insert an iv into his arm only after sedation was a physician able to slide a long needle between two vertebra in the small of his back and extract a few drops of cerebrospinal fluid the doctor performing the procedure sensed trouble immediately The fluid surrounding the brain and spinal nerves is a barrier against infection and injury. In healthy individuals, it is clear and quick flow flowing like moving with an almost silky rush through a needle. The sample from Eugene's spine was cloudy and dripped out sluggishly as if filled with microscopic grit. When the results came back from the laboratory, Eugene's physicians learned why he was ill. He was suffering from viral encephalitis, a disease caused by a relatively harmless virus that produces cold sores, fever blisters, and mild infections on the skin. In rare cases, however, the virus can make its way into the brain, inflicting catastrophic damage as it chews through the delicate folds of tissue. where our thoughts dreams and according to some souls reside eugene's doctors told beverly there was nothing they can do to counter the damage already done but a large dose of antiviral drugs might prevent it from spreading eugene slipped into a coma and for 10 days was close to death gradually as the drugs fought the disease his fever receded <clears throat> and the virus disappeared when he finally awoke he was weak and uh, disoriented and couldn't swallow properly he couldn't form sentences and would sometimes gasp as if he had momentarily forgotten how to breathe but he was alive
Eventually, Eugene was well enough for a battery of tests. The doctors were amazed to find that his body, including his nervous system, appeared largely unscathed. He could move his limbs and was responsive to noise and light. Scans of his head, though, revealed ominous shadows near the center of his brain. The virus had destroyed an oval of tissue close to where his cranium and spinal column met. He might not be the person you remember, one doctor warned, warned Beverly. You need to be ready if your husband is gone. Eugene was moved to a different wing of the hospital within a week. He was swallowing easily. Another week and he started talking normally, asking for jello and salt, flipping through television channels and complaining about boring soap operas. By the team he was discharged to a rehabilitation center five weeks later, Eugene was walking down hallways and offering nurses unsolicited advice about their weekend plans. I don't think I have ever seen anyone come back like this, a doctor told Beverly. I don't want to raise your hopes, but this is amazing. Beverly, however, remained concerned. In the rehab hospital, it became clear that the disease had changed her husband in unsettling ways. Eugene couldn't remember which day of the week it was, for instance, or the names of his doctors and nurses, no matter how many times they introduced themselves. Why do they keep asking me all these questions? He asked Beverly one day after a physician left his room. When he finally returned home, things got even stranger. Eugene didn't seem to remember his dear friends. He had trouble following conversation. Some mornings, he would get out of bed, walk into the kitchen, cook himself bacon and eggs, then climb back under the covers and turn on the radio. Forty minutes later, he would do the same thing, get up, cook bacon and eggs, climb back into bed and fiddle with the radio. Then he would do it again. Alarmed, Beverly reached out to specialists, including a researcher at the University of California, Santiago, who specialized in memory loss, which is how, on a sunny fall day, Beverly and Eugene found themselves in a nondescript building on the university's campus, holding hands as they walked down a hallway. They were shown into a small exam room. Eugene began chatting with a young woman who was using a computer. Having been in electronics over the years, I am amazed at all this, he said, gesturing at the machine she was typing on. When I was younger, the thing would have been in a couple of six-foot racks and taken up this whole room. The woman continued pecking at the keyboard. Eugene chuckled. That is incredible, he said. All those printed circuits and diodes and triodes. When I was in electronics, there would have been a couple of six-foot racks holding that thing. A scientist entered the room and introduced himself. He asked Eugene how old he was. Oh, uh, let me see, 59 or 60? Eugene replied. He was 71 years old. The scientist started typing on the computer. Eugene smiled and pointed at it. That is really something, you know. When I was in electronics, there would have been a couple of six-foot racks holding that thing. The scientist was 52-year-old Larry Square, a professor who had spent the past three decades 
studying the neuroanatomy of memory. His specialty was exploring how the brain stores events. His work with Eugene, however, would soon open a new world for him and hundreds of other researchers who have reshaped our understanding of how habits work. Squire's studies would show that even someone who can't remember his own age or almost anything else can develop habits that seem inconceivably complex until you realize that everyone relies on similar neurological processes every day. His and others' research would help reveal the subconscious, mechanisms that impact the countless choices that seems as if they are products of well-reasoned thought, but actually are influenced by urges most of us barely recognize or understand. By the time Squire met Eugene, he had already been studying images of his brain for weeks. The scan indicated that almost all the damage within Eugene's skull was limited to a 5cm area near the center of his head. The virus had almost entirely destroyed his medial temporal lobe, a, a sliver of cells which scientists suspected was responsible for all sorts of cognitive tasks such as recall of the past, regulation of some emotions. The completeness of the destruction didn't surprise Square. Viral encephalitis consumes tissues with ruthless, almost surgical precision. What shocked him was how familiar the images seemed. Thirty years earlier, as a PhD student at MIT, Square had worked alongside a group studying a man known as H.M., one of the most famous patients in medical history. When H.M., his real name was Henry Molasson, but scientists shrouded his identity throughout his life, was seven years old. He was hit by a bicycle and landed hard on his head. Soon afterwards, he developed seizures and started blacking out. At 16, he had his first grand mal seizure, the kind that affects the entire brain. Soon, he was losing consciousness up to 10 times a day. By the time he turned 27, HM was desperate. Anti-convulsive drugs hadn't helped. He was smart but couldn't hold a job. He still lived with his parents. HM wanted a normal existence. So he sought help from a physician whose tolerance for experimentation outweighed his fear of malpractice. Studies had suggested that an area of the brain called the hippocampus might play a role in seizures. When the doctor proposed cutting into HM's head, lifting up the front portion of his brain and, with a small straw, sucking out the hippocampus and some surrounding tissue from the interior of his skull, HM gave his consent. The surgery occurred in 1953 and as HM healed, his seizures slowed almost immediately. However, it became clear that his brain had been radically altered. H.M. knew his name and that his mother was from Ireland. He could remember the 1929 stock market crash and news reports about the invasion of Normandy. But almost everything that came afterward, all the memories, experiences and struggles from most of the decade from his surgery had been erased. When the doctor began testing H.M.'s memory by showing him playing cards and list of numbers, he discovered that H.M. couldn't retain any new information for more than 20 seconds or so. So this is the first part.
and uh, we will continue with the second part in the next episode thank you so much for listening you have a great day ahead